Welcome to the Church of Rocky Peaks downloadable messages and podcast. Hey, well, I do want to welcome you. And uh, if you're brand new, uh, we go into a time of teaching about this time every week. And inside your program is a message note sheet that will help you follow along. You'll definitely want to take that out. And if you guys are all set, uh, I'm ready to go. You guys ready? All right, let's pray. God, thank you so much for uh, what you're doing in our lives, in our church. Uh, Thank you so much for for Jesus, who he is, what he means, and this chance for us to really study his life and teaching and what it means to follow him and to be transformed. And so we we pray that you would come today, be our teacher as always, be our leader, uh, be our Lord, uh, shepherd, uh, guide, uh, open our eyes as we pursue you together in Christ's name. Amen. Well, today we're continuing this series that we've been in now for the last couple months. Uh, For those who are brand new, it's a series called Jesus the King, and it's a study of the life and teaching of Jesus as told by one of the leaders of the early movement of Jesus, a man by the name of Mark, who is a close personal friend and associate of the apostle Peter. And uh, so he hung out with Peter for all those years, heard all the stories firsthand of Jesus, his teaching, his life, his death, his resurrection. And so he, he writes this uh, account. Scholars believe it's the very first account we have of the life of Jesus. Uh, it's uh, written about 35 years after the movement got launched, after Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And, and so in it, he's sharing the story of Jesus for those uh, who are Christ followers in Rome. He writes it in the, in the capital of Rome. Uh, and for also for uh, other people who are just checking out Jesus to share the message of Christ with them. And so in this, uh, in this gospel, Mark uh, has been telling how Jesus starts off his ministry. He goes to the northern part of the, uh, of, of the nation, to the area of the Galilee. And he begins to share his message. And his message is very simple but very profound. His, he's announcing that this long-promised kingdom of God that uh, the prophets had been promising for a thousand years, a time when God would break into human history, Messiah would come, this great king would come, turn all wrongs to right, lead to this golden age of the universe, that that time was actually beginning. It was, the kingdom of God was near, it was here, it's breaking into time and space. And then on top of that, Jesus not only announced that kingdom, but he backed it up because <coughs> he did uh, what I call signs of the kingdom. Wherever he went, uh, he was healing the sick, uh, raising the dead, opening the eyes of the blind. It was just after the power of the coming kingdom, uh, this next age was breaking into time and space. And it was like springtime. Uh, you could see what life would be like when the king was in charge of everything. And so last weekend, or two weekends ago, we started this new section <coughs> in Mark where uh, it starts with chapter 2 where Mark uh, shares with us five of the early conflict experiences that Jesus has with the religious leaders of his day that will eventually lead a couple years down the line to his life or to his uh, arrest and his execution. And so the last two weeks, we've looked at the first two of these five events. Now, uh, the next three weeks or next three messages, not Easter, but next three messages uh, we're going to be looking at these next three conflict events, and I'm going to be doing a short series, kind of a mini-series, called Religion Kills. And so today we're, gonna, we're, gonna, we're going to uh, uh, start with uh, chapter 2 of Mark and verse 18. We're going to look at this third, third event. And so there on your note sheet, you have a section uh, that's called uh, Conflict Number 3, New Wine, Old Wineskins. And so if you have your Bibles or your uh, iPads or your notepads or phones or whatever your apps, go ahead and open them up. And we're going, to, we're going to pick it up at chapter 2 and verse 18. But before we do that, um, I need to set the stage. In the time of Jesus, uh, first century Judaism, there were three major spiritual practices, spiritual disciplines. The rabbis called them three pillars of the godly life, kind of the spiritual life. And uh, those three, you may want to write these down. They're important for today. The first one was giving to the poor. And so like this, this initiative for the poor that we're doing would fit with that, uh, that, that they would say giving to the poor is one of the, the, the most important kind of disciplines, practices of the godly person's life. The second pillar was prayer, uh, just you know, spending time talking with God. Uh, the third one was fasting. The third pillar is fasting. And so fasting is uh, where you abstain from uh, food or beverage, uh, like we're doing this week on the beverage side. But uh, you abstain from food or beverage. 
for the sake of spiritual growth or uh, uh, direction from God or time of crisis where you need God to speak or intervene in some way. And so um, th- these were the big three in ancient Judaism, very prevalent in the time of Jesus. And Jesus was a big fan of all three. That uh, He saw all three of these as important spiritual tools to develop our relationship with God. So for example, in Matthew chapter 6, uh, it's no accident that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about these three pillars of Judaism right in a row. And so he talks about, uh, he talks about hey, when you give uh, to the poor, uh, when you pray, and when you fast. And so Jesus uh, was big on these three, three. He practiced them in his own life, all three disciplines he practiced in his own life. And catch this, he assumes that as followers of Jesus, we will practice all three disciplines too. So Jesus is very big on, on all three. Uh, his only concern in Matthew 6 is, is that, uh, that when we do it, we do it for the right reasons. We do it for the right motives. We do it to seek God and pursue God. We don't do it to impress other people. All right, so, so Jesus was big on fasting as one of the three, and we see Jesus fasting in his life. For example, uh, before he starts his ministry, he goes out into the wilderness for 40 days, and during that time, it's a time of, of intense uh, spiritual warfare. It's a time of seeking God for his future, and during that time, he, he fasts. He goes without food so he can turn his attention towards, uh, towards heaven and, and kind of focus on spiritual uh, things. And so Jesus was big on fasting, uh, but today uh, the conflict that we're going to see is over this topic of fasting, topic on the table. And so uh, what was uh, happening in Israel is at the time of Jesus that the, this, uh, the religious leaders had taken this tool of God uh, called fasting and they turned it into a rule. And one of the things we're going to see today is that we have a natural tendency as fallen human beings to take spiritual tools and turn them into spiritual rules. And when a tool becomes a rule, it becomes religious and it becomes deadly. And so this is what they had done. And so according to the Jewish historian, Josephus, uh, they had taken this this, uh, spiritual practice of fasting that's usually associated with times of crisis uh, times where you really need God's direction, a time of a special spiritual focus for a special purpose, you need God to speak. They had taken it and they had made it into sort of a ritual of life. And so that according to Josephus, the Pharisees, these religious leaders that we met last week, kind of the, the spiritual elite of the, of the nation, a uh, very legalistic group, they, they had uh, made this rule that you should fast twice a week and they actually practiced fasting every Monday and every Thursday. Now, the way you could tell they were fasting every Monday and every Thursday is that they were very depressed on those days. Okay? And so they, they, uh, they wanted you to know, since this was a mark of spirituality, it's now become a rule. That's what religion does, creates rules. And now there's rules for us to follow that are kind of, uh, not to say God's rules, kind of man-made rules. And, and so now we know who the good guys are, who the bad guys are. We know who the spiritual people are, who the unspiritual people are. And so, so once that happens, now it becomes very important that you let people know that you're one of the good guys, that you're, you're spiritual. And so every Monday and every Thursday, they would look kind of depressed. They would not dress like normal. They would kind of be a little disheveled, kind of shuffle around because they're so weak. Uh, they would let you know. And so, so we're going to be able to relate to this this week, right? Because some of you started your fast today and you haven't had your coffee and you're already becoming bitter. You're already becoming hard to live with. You're becoming cranky, okay? So this is what they would do. They'd get kind of cranky on those days. Just to let everyone know that they are truly pursuing God. They're, they're serious about this. And so, so now it becomes this mark of spiritual pride. It creates insiders and outsiders and those who are really seeking God and those who aren't. And that's what Jesus was cautioning against in the Sermon on the Mount. You want to do it for the right reason. But the point is, big part of their culture was fasting. There was another important group of uh, kind of Jewish movement, uh, spiritual movement in Israel at this time. It was an emergent movement. Uh, and they were the disciples of John the Baptist. Uh, John the Baptist was still in prison. His, you know, John was a very ascetic guy. He was a guy that kind of denied himself a lot of physical pleasures. And so uh, his disciples, apparently fasting, played a big role in their life. And everyone knew this. And so what's going to happen today 
is that uh, some people are going to come to Jesus and they're, they're trying to figure out their spiritual life. They're trying to look, what does it look like to follow God? We've got these Pharisees, these religious leaders. They say we need to fast twice a week. They're super into the moving Thursday. We see this new spiritual movement of this charismatic leader, John the Baptist. We see his disciples. They're fasting all the time. We see, when we look at Jesus and disciples, they're always eating. They're always <laughs> drinking. They're always having a good time. They're never depressed. They're not hangdog. You know, they're not bitter. Uh, in fact, and they're eating with sinners. They're having all these feasts. And so what's up with this? Are they, I thought he was serious about pursuing God. Like, what's going on here? And so they're going to come and they're gonna say, hey, what's up with that? Uh, how come the Pharisees, they fast, and the disciples of John, they fast, but your disciples are just living it up. And so what's up with that? And so here we're going to pick up the story now in chapter 2 and verse 18, and we'll see what Jesus says. So... John's disciples, this is John the Baptist, and the Pharisees were fasting, and some people came and they asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Like, like what's up with that? And so Jesus is going to answer by, with an analogy. And if you remember, if you are here last week, you remember that, uh, remember last week the question was, the conflict was over, why is Jesus hanging out and having, sharing meals with people far from God? And when they asked him that, remember, he used an analogy. And he said, I am like a doctor, and I've come to help sick people, and that's why I hang out with people far from God. Remember that analogy, okay? Today, he uses a different analogy. Today, he's going to use the analogy. He says, I'm like a bridegroom. My disciples are like my wedding party or like the guests at my uh, wedding. And, and this wouldn't be appropriate to, for, for them to be fasting during a wedding. And so, so let's talk about this. In a wedding in ancient Israel... A wedding would last for seven days. I'm letting you fathers do the mental math. <laughs> right, you're seeing bankruptcy. You're seeing foreclosure. You're seeing like, thank God I didn't live then. Uh, thank God I've only got two daughters. No. Uh, anyway, yeah, so seven days. And it was a party. I mean, it was like this lasted all week long. This is why when Jesus did his first miracle, he turned water into wine. And, and so if you've ever studied that, you know, he made about 150 gallons. And I, I don't know if you've ever thought, that's a lot of wine bottles, right? And so you're like, why so much? It's like, wow, I wish I ran out of wine. So, uh, and so, but you understand that this was a party. This is a big, this goes on for a week. It's a time of festivity. It's a time for eating, for drinking, for relaxing, for conversation. Uh, we're told that in ancient Israel, even the rabbis would stop studying Torah, the law, during a wedding. It was a time of great celebration, of joy in their culture, right? And so here's the interesting thing. In the Old Testament, God, uh, the prophets had predicted that one day when Yahweh came back to the nation, that one day when he, the kingdom of God came, that, that God would come like a bridegroom to the nation and he would enter into a marriage with them and he would celebrate over them and he would marry them in a wedding. And so this was a common uh, figure of the kingdom of God. And so Jesus is that he's doing something very interesting. He's comparing himself to the bridegroom, which in the Old Testament was Yahweh. And so once again, we see Jesus claiming to do or be something that only God can do or be. We saw a couple weeks ago in the beginning of chapter two, in the first conflict, Jesus claimed to, to be able to have the authority to forgive sins. We said something only God can do. Now, here again, third conflict, he's portraying himself as the bridegroom. And so what he's saying is that Hey, it's kingdom time. The kingdom of God is here. We've been waiting for this a thousand years. God is coming to his people. The kingdom of God is drawing near. This is not a time for fasting, which is often associated with hard times, crisis, pain. So this is a time for celebration. This is wedding time. And so what Jesus is telling them is that I'm not against fasting. He did it in his own life. He taught it for his life. He's just saying this is not the time and place. There will come a time when it will be appropriate. And so let's see what he says. He says in verse 19, he says, so how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? That'd be very inappropriate. He says they cannot 
so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be what? Taken from them. And most scholars believe this is a reference to his arrest and execution because bridegrooms are only taken away from a wedding feast. And so it's weird language. It's like snatched away. And kind of speaking of the time when he will be taken away from his disciples. And he says that when that happens, on that day they will fast. It will be a time of crisis. And they, they will stop eating that, that weekend of the resurrection. You know, when he, when he, before the resurrection, it's going to be a time of crisis. So that will happen. He says, but it's, it's not now. And so the question is, hey, why aren't your men kind of doing what all of our other religious leaders and traditions say we need to do to pursue God. Why, why aren't they fasting? They're not doing Mondays, they're not doing Thursdays, they're not like disciples of John. You're, you're eating, you're drinking, you're having a great time. What's up with that? He says, hey, this should be a great time. The kingdom has come. It's like a wedding. It's just not the time. That's his answer, all right? But he's going to use this opportunity to do a major important teaching about his coming and what it means to be part of his kingdom and what it means to be his follower. And basically, what Jesus wants him to understand is that we are entering into a new era of the human race. So with the coming of Jesus, the kingdom of God is unfolding. It's a new time. And a lot of the ways you used to think about God, a lot of the old religious traditions you used to have, some that were commanded by God in the Old Testament, some that were man-made by the Pharisees, but a lot of these old ways are changing, like times are changing, right? And, and, and something new is happening. And, and you're gonna need to learn to leave the past behind and leave some of your old religious thinking and your old religious rules. You're gonna have to leave that behind if you're gonna be part of what I'm doing. You have to let go of the past in order to move into the future, okay? Now, a little sidebar here. This is true in our lives too, isn't it? That every one of us has ideas about God, traditions, rituals. They're not really from Jesus. They're from the way we were raised. They're from the culture that we've grown up in. They're from life experiences we have. And trust me, as we follow Jesus, he is going to routinely say, you need to let go of that religion of your past if you're gonna move into this relationship of wedding with a king, you see? And so he's going to give them a couple analogies. And he's going to say, it's kind of like this. He says, like, if, if you have a, a pair of clothes and you get a tear in it, and remember in that day they were very poor, so they didn't have lots of clothes in their closet. They just probably have one set of clothing. Maybe if you're rich, maybe two. So, so when you have a tear in your clothing, you don't throw it away or give it to goodwill. You fix it. You patch it. And so it's a very common illustration. He says, you know, when you, when you patch your clothes, he says, y'all know uh, it's important that you put on the, the patch, the, the, the new cloth you patch on there. It's important you wash that first. Because if you don't wash it, it won't have shrunk. And so then when you put on unshrunk cloth and you, you do a, ni- a nice a tight you know, stitch on the, on the old hole, when you wash it, uh, the, the, the new, new, new fabric is going to shrink and pull away from the old fabric that's already been shrunk. And so it's going to create a larger tear than before. So if you just try to take the new patch and put it on the old clothing, uh, it, we're going to have a problem. It, it's not going to work. Okay? The new and the old don't mix. Then he tells uh, another illustration. He says, you know, when, you, when it comes to making wine, like in that day when you'd make wine, uh, you'd take the, the grapes and put them in a big vat or whatever, and you'd let them begin to ferment. At a certain point, it becomes wine. They call it new wine. They would take the new wine out of the vats. They would put it into a new wine skin. Wine skins were made out of leather, new leather, soft, supple. So you'd pour the wine into the wine skin to store it. And once in there, the new wine would continue to ferment and expand. And and so that was fine because these new wine skins were soft and supple. And so they would begin to expand with it, and that was all good. But you would never take new wine and put it in an old wine skin that had been used before and had already been stretched. Because if you did, when it ferments and expands, it would explode and you'd lose the wine and you'd lose the wineskin. And so the point is, you can't take the new movement of Jesus, the new teaching of Jesus, and just attach it to the old wine. You can't just pour it in the old wineskins of Judaism, the old traditions, the old ways of thinking. You can't do that. You can't take the new teaching of Jesus and just patch it on the old ways of Judaism. It will tear. It will rip. It will not work. It will be destructive. Okay? So he's going to use these two analogies. So he says... 
Um, no one, verse 21, sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the new, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst, and this, uh, the, the, wine, the, the wines will burst, the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, he pours new wine into new wineskins. So there are two illustrations to say times are changing. The way that you used to look at your relationship with God, the way that you used to relate to God. Th- think of this as the movement of Jesus goes out you know, after his life, death, and resurrection. Think of all the changes. All the sacrifices go away. Uh, circumcision goes away. Uh, well, you know what I'm saying? Uh, anyway, um, the practice of circumcision goes away. Um, the, uh, a lot of the, the Sabbath rules, the feasts, they, they go away. They're no longer required, right? So there's a lot of things that God had done in the Old Testament and required that are going to go away. But then, of course, there's, there's all these new kind of rules and man-made rituals of the Pharisees. They're going to go away. So what Jesus is saying is the kingdom is coming. The king has come. It's a new era. And if you're going to be joined with me, you're going to have to change the way you think. You're going to have to let go of your old religious thoughts and move into some new relationships type thoughts, relationship with the king, all right? And so uh, today what we want to do as we kick off this new kind of three-week mini-series is I want to just highlight a couple principles that flow out of this passage uh, about uh, the, the danger of religion, right? And, and as Christ follows the danger this is in our life and how it to be on guard against it and what it looks like and so on. So there in your note sheet is a section called Religion Kills Part 1, and I've creatively called the next two messages part two and part three, because uh, it kills every time. All right, so uh, here we go. Uh, number one, first thing that uh, jumps out at me from this passage is that rel- a religion is the enemy of relationship. Okay, that, that religion, uh, according to Jesus, religion is the great enemy of relationship. Now, it's interesting uh, it, it's interesting that uh, in the last, I don't know, five, six, ten years, whatever, there's been this new movement that's kind of risen up in our country. You may have heard of it. And it's often referred to as the new atheism. Uh, have any of you heard this? New, new atheism. Some of you heard this. Um, there, there are several writers that are at the forefront of that. People like uh, Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens and Sam Harris. And so they're writing some books that are often bestsellers. Uh, and what they're doing is they're, they're not only criticizing the whole concept of God and saying there is no such thing as God, and that's a man-made concept. They're not only saying that, but they're actually going to the next level and saying and not only is there is no God, but this whole concept of God is a very dangerous concept because it leads to religion. And one of the greatest enemies of the human race historically has been religion. Look at all the damage that's been done via religion. Even today in our, our culture, you know, you think of, uh, you know, uh, 9-11. Look at, there you go, you know, religion, right? So, so this is their argument. And so, for example, in 2007, Christopher Hitchens wrote a book called God is Not Great, How, po- How Religion Poisons Everything. Okay, so you kind of get the idea where this book is going. And so the, the, the interesting thing is when, when I hear about these writings, when I, when I read those kind of titles, one of my first thoughts is this, that I think Jesus would agree with them. Yeah. Okay? And I think that much of what they write about, Jesus would say, you go. <laughs> you're on the wrong team, but you're headed the right direction for the moment. Right? Because for, for Jesus, one of the greatest enemies of a relationship with God is religion. And if you don't believe me, just stop and think about it. Uh, who killed Jesus but the religious leaders, you see? And, and so, uh, so, so it's a great danger in our, our life. And so um, Jesus would agree with that, and, uh, and, he, and he came to do something different, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But before we launch in further in this point, I want to do a quick sidebar here, because it's important. I, I just want to say this, that, that religion is not always a bad word, okay? Now, I will be treating it in this series like a bad word. But I want to say at the beginning of it, I don't know if I'll come back to this again, I hope, hopefully not, but there's new people every week, so sometimes I feel like I need to. But, but, um, but 
but I want to say is that religion is not by nature a bad word. I mean, it's like often religion is used just to describe kind of a shorthand way of describing our relationship with God. And even in the Bible, there are times, not very many, but there are times when religion is used in a positive sense to describe our relationship with God. So for example, on your note sheet, uh, James is the half-brother of Jesus. He becomes uh, one of the great leaders of the early movement of Jesus after the resurrection. Didn't believe in Jesus before that, but the res- resurrection is a way of changing your mind. And he says, um, in, in James chapter one, he's writing to new Christ followers, and he says, hey, if anyone considers himself what? Religious. Okay, circle it. Anyone considers himself religious, and by this, James is using it in a positive way. He's saying, if anyone considers himself as having a true relationship with God, a, a true follower of Jesus, he says, uh, and yet he doesn't keep a tight rein on his tongue, in other words, he doesn't watch what he says, then he deceives himself, and his what? Religion, there it is. His religion is worthless. He says religion, there it is again. He's using it in a positive sense. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this is to look after orphans. In other words, uh, to, to love the poor while we're doing this like initiative for the poor, that type of thing. To look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted from the world. Okay, so he says, so, so he says religion is using in a good word. Religion is really, it's loving God, it's loving the poor, it's, it's keeping ourselves uh, 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 kind, of un, kind of pure from the world around us. It's, it's using our language to build people up. And so he's using religion in a positive sense here. But what I want you to catch is this is the exception to the rule. Because there are only three places in the whole Bible, if you look in the New International Version, there are only three places in the whole Bible where religion is used in a positive sense. And we just read two of them. Okay? And so, so in our culture today, uh, religion is, I think, often seen as a negative word. That, that religion, when I say the word religion, that often it, it conjures up uh, pictures in your mind of maybe uh, churches from a bygone day. Maybe it's a little country church in the bits of a, a pastoral scene out in the middle of, of kind of Missouri somewhere, you know, a little white church, and it just kind of looks very quaint from a bygone day. Maybe a cathedral in Europe that no one goes to anymore, uh, but it's awesome building, and so you go there to visit, almost like a museum. And so we think of religion, we, we think of something that's kind of out of touch with reality. It's, it's maybe old-fashioned. I think we often think in terms of rules. We think of rituals. We think of traditions, often which we don't understand. You know, mommy, why do we go to church uh, on Easter? I don't know, but it's good for us. You know, it's just that kind of thing. You know, why can't we do this? I don't know, but just do it. It's good for you. Uh, and so it's, it's like religion is kind of one of those things that doesn't really make a lot of sense, but somehow it buys a space with the Almighty in some way that, that kind of life will go better. And so let's just kind of do this thing. Are, are you with me? I think that this is what comes to our mind uh, when we think about religion. And here's what I want you to catch, is that Jesus says that way of thinking is one of the greatest enemies of relationship. That when Jesus came, he did not come to start a religion. Okay? Jesus came to restore our relationship. He came to restore our relationship with God, and he came to teach us how to do relationships with one another. And Jesus was very clear on this. Think with me, uh, Matthew 22, Jesus is once asked, of all the commandments in the Old Testament, all the laws, there were 613 in the law of Moses, of all the commandments, which is the most important, number one, kind of a David Letterman type thing, uh, what's the top commandment? And Jesus said this, the top commandment is that you would love God passionately. But the way he said it is that the thing that God cares about the most is you love him with all of your heart, all of your soul, and all of your mind. That, that God wants a relationship with you where he loves you passionately, you love him passionately. There are no other gods before me. He is the ultimate value in our life. He has captured our affection There's no one, there's no person, there's no thing that's more important than knowing him, loving him, experiencing his presence, passionately pursuing him. This is why here at Rocky Peak, our vision is to unleash a movement of passionate Christ 
followers. The first, first part of that is pursuing God. It's where it comes from. It comes from Matthew 22. This is what God cares about. He's about relationship, okay? A passionate relationship with you, a passionate relationship with me. This is what it's always been about. Jesus says, this is what it's about, okay? And he said, the second thing, so the second, the second most important thing is that you would love one another uh, as you love yourselves. And he said, so uh, that's from Leviticus 19. So, says, so this is what God cares about. He cares about passionately loving him. He cares about doggedly loving one another. He, Jesus said, this is why I've come to restore relationships. So you see it all the time in his teaching. So for example, in Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus talks about these three pillars of Judaism, right? The fasting, prayer, uh, and, and uh, uh, giving the poor. He sets them all in the context of relationship. They, they become rules. They become ritual. Jesus, he, he takes them back and says, let's talk about this in the context of relationship. So he said, so when you give to the poor, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing uh, be, so the, because uh, your father in heaven See, see, so he restores. Think of this in terms of the fatherhood of God and why you're doing this. Uh, he says, when you pray, uh, he says, don't be like the hypocrites or the pagans. They stand on the street corners. They, they, they use a lot of big words when they pray. They pray really long prayers because they somehow think, kind of a pagan notion, they just kind of do these ritual, ritual prayers and you say it X amount of times and, and whatever, that, 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 that somehow God will be moved by that. So it's a religious way of thinking. He said, no, no, let's think relationship. You have a father. He knows the hairs on your head. He knows you better than you know yourself. He knows what you're going to say before you say it. So when you talk to him, just talk. Just be yourself. You see, he restores relationship. He says, when you, uh, when you fast, don't go around hangdog. Don't look depressed. Don't do it to impress people. Do it for it to seek your father. And your father in heaven will reward you. So Jesus is constantly stripping us away from religion and reorienting us to relationship. You see? And you see it in this passage especially because Jesus sets the context of fasting uh, in, and it sets the context of the kingdom in the context of a marriage. He compares himself. Why aren't you fasting? He says, I'm like a bridegroom. And this had a long history in the nation of Israel. So, see, when the nation of Israel came out of Egypt in bondage and God revealed himself at, in Mount Sinai, there were several different images that God began to give to them pictures of what the kind of relationship he wanted. And so God is creator. They are created. God is king. They are subjects. God is master. They are, they are, uh, uh, they, they are servants. God is father. They are children. But one of the most powerful images that God began to use to educate his people on the kind of relationship was this image of lover and beloved. And so when they enter at Mount Sinai, uh, God enters into a covenant, much like marriage. In fact, the prophets later on would compare it to marriage. And they, they said that God is like this, this lover who's coming after his bride, and he leads his bride through the wilderness, and she has eyes for him only, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. And, and so this, this analogy, this picture of marriage, where, where God is passionately in love with his bride, and the bride has eyes for him only, this becomes a picture of the relationship God wants with his people. And so the problem is, of course, is that Israel committed spiritual adultery time and time again. She was not a faithful bride. She, she was like a bride that, that, you know, at that moment of, of marriage as eyes only for her husband. I got to do a wedding in Hawaii a few weeks ago. I'm standing there and I got, you know, I always had the best seat in the house for this. And, and you have this, you come to that moment where you say, okay, face one another. We're going to take our vows. And so you have the, 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 the groom and you have the bride and they're looking at each other and they have their hands in each other's hands and their eyes in each eyes and their tears in their eyes as they speak there's not there's, there's eyes for them only they don't there's no one else in the world at that moment they don't want anyone else it's just that person has captured their affection and they love him and that's the relationship God wanted with Israel but Israel began soon after into this honeymoon begins running after other gods and so she begins committing spiritual adultery time and time again and God is so patient as a husband trying to woo her back but finally he gets to the place after hundreds of years he says enough is enough I divorce you. I divorce you. And he sends her away from the nation of Israel to the land of Babylon. And he says, if you want to worship the gods of Babylon, why don't you go move in and live with Babylon and see how that feels? 
and he divorces the nation. And yet, God's heart for his people never changed. And so the prophets began to predict a day when God would come back to the nation and the kingdom of God would come. And it uses wedding language to describe that day. When God would come and he would sing over his people again and he would come as the great bridegroom to the nation and the kingdom of God would come. And Jesus says today, that's why I'm here. That's why we're not fasting. Do you see what I'm saying here? Jesus came to restore relationship. And here's what we're going to see, though. The great enemy of Jesus will be religion. In fact, in the next three messages, the next two messages, we'll see this by the end of these three conflicts. Very early on here in his ministry, this is the early days of his ministry still, very early on, at the end of the third conflict, the political and religious leaders will begin to meet together to decide how to take this guy out. How can we arrest him and kill him? You see, because religion always ends to the death of Jesus in our life. Religion always tends to take the life of Jesus away from us. See, and so religion is the great enemy of relationship. Now, number two. And this is the bad news. And it goes like this. That religion is our default setting. That, that as a race, we have a natural propensity, uh, a natural tendency to take our relationship with God and turn it into a religion. And so... so uh, you know, we often talk here about how we're the fallen race, right? And we, and we have this magnetic pull to the dark side. Now, when someone comes to Jesus, his DNA comes in us. We get to change from the inside out. At the core of our being, we're changed. But we still have this magnetic pull. And the, the New Testament calls it our flesh. And part of that flesh is not just a pull towards the dark side, like immorality or greed or anger or selfishness. Part of it is a religious pull. And this, it's part of that magnetic pull is to take our our relationship with God and turn it into a religion. And so we all have to wrestle, we all have this natural pull to catch this, to create God in our own image, which is what religion's about. And, and so we want to create God in our own image uh, so that he either will allow us to do what we want to do or so that we can control God uh, and, and stop and think about it. Religion is, is mostly or largely about control. Like if I do these things, if I say these prayers, if I jump through these hoops, if I fast on Mondays and Thursdays, that I can control God in my life. If I, I will do these things and I can control that and I will be safe. And if you stop and think about it, this is one of the draws of religion. This is one of the reasons we're so drawn to religion is that religion allows us to run our own lives. See, see relationship by Nature is dangerous, isn't it? Uh, and when you enter into a relationship with God, it's very dangerous because he will mess with you, right? Like, like when you go one-on-one -on -one with God as your father uh, and, 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 you're one -on -one and you look him in the eye, you know that the beautiful thing is going to be real relationships. He'll love you. He's going to care about you. But he's also going to correct. He's also going to discipline. And often it's easier to do religion. Just go to church, say the prayers, check the box, and now I go out and live my own life however I want. But I'm safe. I'm good because I've done religion. You see? And we can do It's easy to see that. So it's easy to see. You can see a person's like, hey, they go to church on, on Easter. They go to church on Christmas. They say these certain prayers. You go, oh, it's just so religious. Glad we're not like that. And then we do the same thing. You just check different boxes. You see? It, it's, it's a natural tendency to take the true God and distort that image, create God in our own image. And there's a magnetic pull here. And, and this is what happens. Like, look, like, think with me about the Pharisees. This is what happened to the Pharisees. The Pharisees started off as an incredible movement. They were a group of men who were really passionate about pursuing God in the midst of a time of great persecution. 
When, when the nation of Syria came in, overran their nation, tried to stop them worshiping God, stop the sacrifices, stop, stop all the laws of God, and they said, no, we're going to serve God, we're not going to serve you, and we can take our lives, we can't stop us from pursuing God. So they started off uh, from, kind of a, they, they emerged from a group called the Hasidim that were just incredible, about 200 years before Jesus, this movement started, it was incredible. But as what often happens in spiritual movements, they degenerate over time. They begin to add all these man-made rules, rituals, traditions. And so by the time of Jesus, these men who are supposedly pursuing God are now trying to kill God. You see? And so there's this natural tendency. And so you can see this in fasting. Fasting's a good thing. We've talked about it. It's a great, time, a great way to seek God, to turn away from, uh, turn away from the physical world to, to, to focus on the spiritual world. You see it in Jesus' life. You see it in the New Testament. Paul and Barnabas will fast and pray before they appoint apostles in the churches they start. Uh, the, the prophets and teachers in Antioch in Acts chapter 13, they're going to seek God with prayer and fasting. God's going to speak and give them clear direction for the next stage of their church. And so, so fasting is a beautiful gift. It's designed for times of crisis and times of seeking God for guidance or whatever. What the, but what, had the, what had the Pharisees done? They'd taken this tool, turned it into a rule, now it becomes a ritual every Monday, every Thursday. Now we need to know who the good guys are and the bad guys are, so we need to act depressed, so you know that I'm in and I'm out. And if I'm in and you're not doing it, then you're out. And, and so now this spiritual tool that was meant to draw me closer to God has actually put this, this kind of hindrance between my relationship with God because of my spiritual pride, and it's, it's made me harsh and judgmental towards my neighbor. You see, and this is what religion does is it, it adds all these man-made rules. We'll talk more about that next week. And, and, it, it, and it, instead of taking us towards relationship, it takes us away. And we, and we all have this natural bent to do this. And so today, like we focused on this issue of fasting, we can see it so clearly there. But let's talk about another of the three uh, Jewish uh, uh, pillars. You know, we've talked about fasting. Let's talk about prayer. Let's talk about spending time with God. Let's talk about how we do this. Because I want to get real practical here. I don't have time. There's like a million examples. I could give you, you know, I just don't have time for that. So let's just do one example, okay? How we as Christ followers today can take a relationship with God and, and turn it into ritual and religion that kills us. And let's say this is one example. So I'm going to use this example of the second pillar, which would be our time with God. So as followers of Jesus, we understand this. That if we're going to grow spiritually, if we're going to become the people we are created to be, if we're going to draw close to God, it's important to spend time with him one-on-one, -on -one, right? We, we understand that. And the reason is, this is because how any relationship works. If I want to get close to my wife, it's why I have a date night. If I want to get close to my kids, it's why I spend time one-on-one. -on -one. If I want to develop a friendship, I'm going to make time for that. It's just how relationships work. And it's the same with God. If you want to grow close to God, you need to spend time with him one-on-one. -on -one. That's why Jesus said, when you pray, go alone, go in your closet, you just get with God, okay? Jesus models this in his life. So that's the principle. We understand the principle, okay? And so, so what happens when a new believer comes to Christ, we give him a Bible, we tell him this. If you're gonna grow, you need to spend time with God. Here's his word, you need to read his word, you need to pray, you need to process life, you need to talk to him about what you're doing, kind of what you're doing together, that's what prayer's about, talking about what you're doing together, and it's an important part. And so this new Christian starts off. And they're excited about Jesus, aren't they? Their, their life has been changed. Their sins have been forgiven. The Holy Spirit's come in their life. They're excited. They're growing like a weed. Their life is changing. They're sharing Christ. They're starting to serve. Just, their, their life is just coming together, and they're very excited. And then, at some point, they meet a more mature believer. And it's the beginning of the end. Because up to this point, they've been spending time with God. It's been very varied, when, how, whatever, but they've been reading the word. It's coming alive, speaking their life. They're, they're obeying it. They're talking with God. It's very conversational. It's and so this person says, so, so you're a new believer, huh? So, so uh, how, tell me about your life with God. Like, like when do you spend time with God, and, and, and how, how does that work? And, and do you spend time with him every day? And just, well, I don't know. I, I guess I talk to him throughout the day, but I, I don't know if I spend time with him alone like every day. Oh, well, that's got to change. That's got to change. It's impossible for you to walk well with Jesus without spending time alone with God every day. Oh, really? I didn't know that. I'm glad. I, thanks for telling me. Yeah. And by the way, now, when do you do that? When do you spend time with God? 
I don't know, it really varies. I, sometimes it's late at night, sometimes during the day, sometimes in the morning. Like, oh, no, no, no. It needs to be in the morning. <laughs> but I'm an evening person. No, you're a new creature in Christ. <laughs> the old has passed away. All things have become new. You're now a morning person. Jesus, Jesus sought God in the morning. David said, in the morning, I seek thee. Uh, you need to get up in the morning. I do? Yeah, in the morning. Okay, okay. Well, why do I need to get up in the morning? Because that's when God gets up. <laughs> sun comes up. Sun. Oh, okay. Well, gosh, I'm so glad I met with you. I, um, well, well, how long should I spend? Uh, well, you could start slowly, maybe 15 minutes. But you need to work it up. It needs to be at least an hour. At least an hour. Okay, every day. Every day. Yeah, hour. But I, I, I go to work at 5.30. Well, that's good. You're now getting up at 4.30. That's good. Uh, just continue to go to bed earlier. And, but I won't see my family. That's okay. Your relationship with God's number one, right? Okay. Let's, uh, let's uh, do that. Okay. Uh, all right. Okay. Well, now, when I, I, I pray, how should I do that? Oh, it's very important. Very important how you do this. Uh, I'm going to give you an acronym that's going to help you uh, to do this. Okay. So here's the word ACTS. Write it down. ACTS. Okay. So, uh, well, what, what's that mean? Well, the A stands for adoration. What's that? That's, well, that's like kind of telling God how good he is. Okay, good. Okay. okay, praising him. Okay, what's the C for? It's for confession. What's that? Well, it's for telling God how bad you are. Oh, okay. Uh, okay, what's the T for? Uh, it's for thanksgiving. What should I thank God for? Just, I don't know, think of something. Just, there's a lot out, there's a lot going on. Think of your life. Uh, get, a, get a thanksgiving journal. Do something. Just start being thankful. Okay. And then what's the S for? It's supplication. Suppla what? <laughs> supplication. What's that? It means asking. Oh, so ask. Okay, so I need to do the other thing first. Oh, yeah, it's very important the order. You, you need to tell God how cool he is and how cruddy you are and how thankful you are for what he's done already. And then it's okay to ask. If you break the order, it's not going to work. And so now we have taken this Christian who's in love with Jesus, sharing Christ, growing like a weed, being transformed and led by the Spirit, and we put him in the Pharisee straitjacket. And he now is like, okay, it's a little awkward, but I guess I'm following Jesus. And over time, if he stays on this road long, he'll master this. And on the days that he has, he gets up at 430 He's going to feel very good about himself and his relationship with God. He's going to be sure that God loves him. And the days that he doesn't, he's going to really kind of wonder if God really does love him. And then once he masters it eventually, gets his discipline down, he's going to get very proud of what he's accomplished. And so now he's going to begin dropping that in conversation. And he's going to begin, hey, you know, in my quiet time today, By the way, what did you learn in your quiet time today? And if we do it right, we'll turn this passionate Christ follower into a 21st century Pharisee. And brothers and sisters, this is one of a thousand examples. Now just to be clear here, we all agree spending time with Jesus one-on-one is a non-negotiable, isn't it? If we're gonna, we, we, all wanna, we wanna make sure we're clear on that. And number two, I wanna be very clear. There is nothing wrong with getting up at 4.30 every morning, spending an hour with Jesus, and using acts to do it, as long as that leads you to the presence of God in a way that you truly connect with him and increase your passion for God and your love for people. And anything that does that, then you go for it. The problem is not the tool. The problem is when the tool becomes a rule. And all of a sudden, we've missed what Jesus came to do, to establish a relationship. You know, this, this has become, in my life for many years now, um, I created something uh, that I call, and this may be helpful for you, I call it the relationship grid. Because all the time, there are people that are going to come in your life. They're going to tell you, this is how you pray. This is how you give. 
This is how you evangelize. This is how you serve. This is how you think. Right? And there's all there's gonna be books. There's gonna be people on the radio. There's gonna be messages, pastors, whatever you're gonna hear. And, and everyone's gonna have a lot of advice for you about how you grow and become a, a passionate Christ follower. And here's what I do. I, I set it up. Think of it like a square grid. And it's, it's a relationship grid. And any advice I get, I run it through the relational grid. And I ask this question. Does that advice sound like it's describing a relationship? Or does it describe, it's like describing a rule and ritual? And if it feels like it's describing a, a true relationship, yeah, that makes sense. In the context of relationship, that makes a lot of sense. Like, for example, if we're going to grow personally as Christ followers, we need to spend time with Jesus. Well, that makes sense. That's how relationships work. To say we have to get up every morning at 4.30 and spend an hour with God and use Acts, does that sound like a relationship? No. That's not how relationship. Can, can you imagine me going out with my wife? Okay, we've got this one every day. Like, I don't even spend an hour alone with my wife every day, Right? <laughs> And we're still married. It's this month, our 37th anniversary. It's still working, right? right? Can you imagine going out with your friend? Okay, first, I need you to tell me the good things and tell me the bad things and then tell me, and then if you need anything from me at the end, you know, it's just, that's not how relationships are, you see? And what I found is so helpful, run it through the relational grid, you know? And we use a million examples of this. Does that sound like relationships? So, as long as it's a tool, great. A rule, it becomes destructive. Uh, so so let, me, let me give an example of a relational grid. Like what the example we've used today is spending time with God. So what does that look like to run it through a relational grid? Well, first of all, I've already said, anything that helps you and creates a passion for Jesus and a love for others is a good thing, right? The thing is, is that they're so different. If the Holy Spirit's leading you to do something, it becomes relational if it's just a man-made thing that someone else is imposing, it becomes ritual, right? Like even in my own life, I think of fasting. Like many of you have probably fasted before. There's been times when I fasted. It's been an incredible tool, right? But, but in my life, I have a rule. And the rule goes like this. God, I will fast anytime you ask me to. Not any other time. <laughs> Why? Because early on, I approached it as a rule, and it destroyed a relationship. So it came to place. So, so in your life, there, there'd be something that's a good thing. And anything that, that the Holy Spirit's putting on your heart, calling you to do, beautiful thing, step, then that's awesome. Then do that. And now it's relational. So the, thing, the same thing that's like a rule for another person could be relational for someone else because the Holy Spirit's behind it. You see what I'm saying? So, so for example, let's take this, this whole issue of spending time with God. Uh, this is such an important issue that here at Rocky Peak, we started creating these essentials courses several years ago, these courses that we believe address topics that are absolutely essential for you walking well with God. The very first course we created was called Pursuing God One-on-One -on -one because we believe that it's impossible to walk well with Jesus without having regular time alone with God. But we were very careful the way we constructed that course to say, you know what, every one of us is unique. Everyone's at a different season in life. Some of you are young moms. Some of you are uh, out of nest, you know, empty nesters. Some of you are college students. And we're all at a different season. We're all a different place. And so we're not going to do cookie cutter for one, one size fits all. What we're going to do is we're going to teach you how important it is to spend time with God. We're going to teach you some different ways for you to try out and you how to get some different models, and then you see what works for you and what the Holy Spirit's doing in your life because ultimately this is a relationship, and the Holy Spirit has to lead you in that relationship for this to work. And so one, in, in that course, one of the quotes I used was from John uh, Eldridge, and he wrote the book, Wild Hearts, if you've read that. But here would be a great example of approaching this area of our Christian life with a relationship paradigm rather than a ritual paradigm. And so here you go. Let's look at what he says. He says, time with God each day. It's not about academic study or getting through a certain amount of scripture or any of that. It's about connecting with God. We've got to keep those lines of communication open. So use whatever helps. Sometimes I'll listen to music. Other times I'll read scripture or a passage from a book. Often I will journal. 
Maybe I'll go for a run. Then there are days when all I need is silence and solitude and the rising sun. The point is simply to do whatever brings me back to my heart and to the heart of God. And catch this, discipline, by the way, is never the point. The whole point of a devotional life is connecting with God. This is our primary antidote to the counterfeits the world holds out to us. If you do not have God and have him deeply, you will turn to other lovers. Okay? Now, there's a relational paradigm. There's a relational. What does it look like to spend time with God? Well, it's really important to do it. Different season will look different times, when you do it, how you do it, what you do. But the bottom line is you want to be doing things that connects your heart to God, that causes you to grow, that increases your passion, that restores, that refreshes, that educates, that gives you insight. You need to find that way, and the Holy Spirit will lead you. And so this is just one example. We could have a thousand of, of ways there's this natural tendency for us to start with relationship and to move towards ritual and religion. And every time we take a step in that direction, it kills a little bit more of our relationship. So Jesus says, hey, in my kingdom, I have come to bring a wedding. It's a new day. It's a new era. You're going to have to leave certain things behind you, certain old ways of thinking about God. You have to leave those behind you if you're going to follow me and be part of this wedding feast. And he says, so, so leave the, the, the past behind. Don't try to patch your old clothes with my new teaching. Don't, don't try to take the new wine of my teaching and pour it into old wineskins of the old ways you used to look. He says, the, the kingdom has come. The wedding is set. The guests are arriving. The wine is flowing. Come in and enjoy the relationship with the king. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for the way your word restores our souls and reminds us of the things that were so easy to forget, Father. And even as Christ followers, people that say that we don't believe in religion, that we believe in a personal relationship with God, and yet there's this magnetic pull. And we often wake up and find out that many of the things that we, the ways that we think about you, the ways that we pursue you, are really not relational at all. They, they've just become new religious tradition. And so, Lord, we want to leave the old wineskins behind. We want to leave the old clothes behind. We pray that you'd give us new garments, uh, garments of praise, dressed for the wedding feast of the Lamb, that we come, we come to seek you. We come to know you. We want to grow to be people that are passionately in love with you. Uh, God, we pray you'd come and help us. Uh, help us, Holy Spirit. Come and show us those areas of our life where we're holding on to old ways of thinking about you that are getting in way of the new relationship you've called us to. And God, even as we bring our gifts and our offering now, God, we want to bring it with a heart of relationship, out of a heart of thanksgiving and gratitude, out of a heart that cares deeply about the things you care about, the advance of your kingdom. And so we bring these gifts to you with, with great joy. We pray that you use them to build a place here at Rocky Peak and around the world where people can enter into true relationship with the king. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me? Lord, that's our prayer is we really want to experience your glory. Like, like Moses said, God, just show me your glory um, that we don't want to go forward if you're not going with us. And it really is a desire of our heart. Lord, we want to move past uh, religion. We want to move into relationship. And God, for many of us here, it's a scary thing because the reality is to have relationship means honesty. It means face-to-face firsthand experience. It means giving you access to our lives that religion never requires. Religion partitions you off, puts you in a safe room of the house. Relationship gives you the keys to the front door. And so, Lord, we pray that as a church that we would truly surrender to you as our father, as the bridegroom, that we would give you the keys to our house, that we would say, yes, enter in. We, we want to have true relationship. We would take that risk that everything flows from, that risk of trusting you with our lives. Well, I pray if there's any here today that are not yet Christ followers and that this week they want to invite you into their life 
to forgive them and receive this gift of new life that, that you would call to them this week, that they would, they would take that time to ask you into their life as their Lord, as their Father, as their bridegroom. And so, Lord, we come as a church. We pray that you would not let us rest with religion at this church. We pray that you would drive us, call us, lure us, bring us to full relationship. We pray that even this week, as we think through our lives, your Holy Spirit would be guiding us. Those areas where we still tend to think in old ways that are not really relational ways or religious ways that we just haven't even realized it. And then, God, you begin to free us so we can run with you into the future, loving you with all of our heart, loving you with all of our soul and all of our mind, and loving our neighbor as ourselves as we come into relationship with the only one who's able to make that possible. And so we come this week, Lord, we give you our lives. We pray that you'd lead us this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I hope you can be with us next week. You know, one of the things, one of the marks of religion, as we've seen already from the Pharisees, is this natural tendency to add man-made rules to what God has said. And whenever we do that, we get into trouble. It's why the book of Proverbs, chapter 30, it says, do not add to his word, lest he rebuke you and prove you a liar. And so uh, next week we're going to talk about this natural tendency to add kind of man-made rules with a dynamic that unleashes. And and instead instead of adding man-made rules, how we should make it our goal in life to pursue those things that create a true passion for God and let that be our guide. And so next week we'll be exploring this together as we we kick off uh, uh, the message of the creative title, uh, Religion Kills Part 2. And uh, I hope you have a great week and that God fully messes with you this week. See you next weekend. Well, that's going to do it for this week's message. We hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have putting it together. Please visit us at rockypeak.org where you can download more messages or have your questions answered. Remember, you can subscribe to our weekly podcast for free by searching for The Church at Rocky Peak from within the music store in your iTunes software. For Lead Pastor Mike Yearly and everybody up here at the Peak, thanks for listening.